Today, I speak with Professor Sarah Boyle, Professor of Biology and Chair of the Environmental Science Department at Rhodes College. Her research considers the impact of human behavior on the environment and other species. Specifically, she considers the effects of climate change on primates and plant life. When she was not much older than I am now, Professor Boyle traveled to South America to study the largest forest in the world. In the wilderness of the Amazon, she studied bearded sakis and watched as their habitat continued to deteriorate. Now, Professor Boyle has made it her life's work to ensure that people are aware of the harm that humans are not only doing to their own habitats, but those of so many other unique lives. In the following, we discuss the Amazon, primates, climate change, anthropocentricity, compassion, consciousness, health, the limits of knowledge, and love. I tried to keep up with Professor Boyle as best I could. In the end, I learned a lot about the vastness of our world and the importance of intentional science. Can you tell me about your experience in Brazil when you were studying the beard and sockies? How did you end up there mm -hmm. and why? I, I always like to start out kind of getting into people's backgrounds okay. and why they're studying what they're studying and doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But I think it would be really cool just kind of start with an anecdote of sure. your experience in the most diverse yeah. forest in the, the world. Sure. So I wound up in the Brazilian Amazon by chance because I went to grad school knowing I'm going to study forest fragmentation and primates. And I thought I would be most likely doing work in Ecuador, but I did a course in Costa Rica and then a Smithsonian sent us to Barro, Colorado and Panama. And I found out more about this study area in Brazil where there are forest fragments. And so I figured, uh oh, Maybe I can look into that. So I spoke to people and then went for a summer to check out the field site and wrote grants and then wound up staying there for a while when I returned and did my work. So it was, we were primarily up before dawn and going to where the monkeys had slept and following them until they went back to sleep at night. Into the project, wanting to study primates or was it going into it mostly just to study the deforestation effects on all animals? I'd say I was interested broadly in impacts on all animals, but if I had the opportunity to study primates, I've just always wanted to do that. And so because that opportunity was there, I went for the primates. What piqued your interest on primates? We are primates as humans. And so really where I am today is because of a class I took um, because it had spots open my first semester of college and it was physical anthropology, so biological anthropology. And we read um, books on primate behavior, including by In the Shadow of Man. And I was just fascinated by the social structure and all the dynamics. And so there I was very interested in the behavioral part of it. But then as I moved on and had other experiences, I saw how much conservation was an issue through an internship I had at the Bronx Zoo. And so there I combined my two interests with primate and conservation and pursued that in graduate school. Gotcha. And I remember you told me that you were not originally a bio major mm -hmm. in college. So what, what were you originally? 
So I majored in anthropology, and that was because that's where I could do a lot of the primate coursework. I went into college thinking I was going to major in international studies or math. But then after taking that physical anthropology class, and I was like, oh, you can really major in this. <laughs> that yeah. sounds great. And it also allowed me flexibility to do other things. So I studied abroad for a year, which would have been more difficult with this program in doing a lab-based science degree. But yeah, I just, the anthropology has always interested me in terms of first the non-human primates, but then also looking at human primates. Even growing up when you were like pre-college, maybe be before high school, were you always very inquisitive about social structure and hierarchy? Not really. I think I learned that in college that first semester. Um, I was really interested in primates in general, but I think it was more just like, a, oh, wow, look at them type thing. But it wasn't anything I ever thought would be do for a job <laughs> yeah seriously i just like there there is something very captivating about primates in general like i think anybody who watches a gorilla for 20 minutes is going to notice some really interesting things yeah can you just elaborate on what that might be that's so mystifying about primates um yeah i'd say and also with other organisms too like just seeing that they're individuals and just how intelligent they are. And this, I think that too, in terms of oftentimes we lump, especially animals into these groups in terms of these are just elephants or these are just gorillas. But as people have seen at the zoo this semester in our class and my research students that each of those individuals have their own personality and their own dynamics in terms of how they deal with one another. And it's, I just think fascinating that they're, they are these beings. There's so many ways that we could diverge in this conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I, I have in the back of my mind, you know, talks about anthropocentrism, why we tend to think that we are the only intelligent creatures on earth. I want to get to that at some point, but mm -hmm. I think I'd want to start a little bit more just scientific and a little, a little more, a little more of a summary about what, what, what you study, because for the people listening and also for me as somebody who's not a bio major whatsoever, I think it'd be helpful just to hear a bit about what you're studying specifically. So I study areas that have been very impacted by humans. So with forests, areas have been cleared out. And so I study the areas that remain these forest fragments or forest patches and see, for example, with the primates, which species go locally extinct. So they're no longer able to live in those areas, usually because not enough resources, or it could be they're hunted out. In my area, it wasn't due to hunting, due to resource availability. And then for those that do remain, how do they differ in their behavior and ecology and terms of how they use their resources, how large are their groups? What are their travel patterns like? What are their diets like? And then with the work in Paraguay, looking at hormone levels and do those differ across different size patches? So yeah, I found that definitely some animals go locally extinct with these primates. Others stay in the area, but it doesn't always mean it's positive because they may not have long-term access to resources. So even though they're physically there now, they may not be there in the future. But on the brighter note, because everyone always asks me, why do you study something so depressing with a lot of these primates? They will use regrowth forest, so secondary growth forest or areas that have been allowed to regenerate. And so you can wind up 
making the ecosystem more biodiversity friendly, which also helps humans too, usually, because it means you have cleaner water and better soil. And so that's a positive aspect that even though in some areas there's been so much destruction by human behavior, you can make things better. And so understanding if you have resources to do these improvements, where is it best to put your energy so that you have the best positive outcome? Where is it best to put your energy? Because I always hear people talk about the world ending in years. And like, there's all these apocalyptical Mm -hmm. scenarios that people always bring up and it really can be depressing. So I'm I'm just curious, like what's in your view and your studies, what's the best route that we can take as a species to help other species survive? Yeah, so say specific to my work, it really depends on the landscape context and where the corridors would be best placed, but more in a broader context in terms of just humans overall. We waste so much and there's so much we don't need. And I see it on campus all the time and I see it outside of campus and and I'm guilty of that too. And I think if we just think more about our actions and also a lot of, for example, students are going to go into many different careers and thinking about how their careers may impact their surroundings, their environment, but also that of other people who you know, in terms of a lot of these environmental, some populations are a lot more negatively impacted than others. And so I think just people realizing that and thinking about, can I help support certain types of businesses over others? Or if I'm in a certain industry, are there ways I can lower the the emissions that are coming off of this? Or what am I eating? So a lot of our diet is directly tied to a variety of environmental impacts. But even what am I wasting? So if you go into the cafeteria and see how much food and other items are just being tossed all the time. And so little, I think a lot of people think this is just the news headlines are very negative, but the the data are very negative, truthfully. So I think it's good that people are being told the realistic picture that, yes, climate change, for example, is really, really serious and it's getting worse. And there are some people who've been horribly impacted and more people will be horribly impacted. But then also realizing that small actions can help things. And so just little behavioral changes in your life, it's not going to solve the world's problems, but having some sort of a sense of hope or at least my actions, if I do them, maybe the people around me will do them. And then having a more cohesive culture of thinking about, do we really need to have all these plastic cups at our event? Or do I really need to buy yet another cell phone when mine works fine? That type of thing. Because I think it's just, we do have a a lot of people, I'd say, in the United States have a culture of waste. Yeah, that's that's the tricky thing for me is where and how do we differentiate between like human nature and what's mm-hmm. going to always be? I mean, every single animal tends to be self-preservative and dominant over others when they can. And so I, I'm just curious, like how we can stop that culture. So for you individually mm-hmm. and, and your family, like how do you implement these changes in your life? Yeah. So just small things like we try to conserve water. So our Kids know we turn off the water when they're brushing their teeth or my (laughs) children are a bit too overly (laughs) into this uh, because of 
truthfully, the pandemic, they heard all of our teaching for a year and a half online. So they they were little Rhodes students. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, oh. <laughs> um, so stuff like just even reusable items. And I think recycling is wonderful. But I think the first thing people should think about first is, can I just reuse it? I don't need to necessarily. Recycling still takes energy and it still creates some waste. For a lot of things, it's not going to be fully recyclable. But if you reuse it, you don't even have to get to that point of recycling. And then hopefully you would recycle before you just throw it out. So stuff like thinking about that or orders, we tend not to, our family doesn't buy much. <laughs> but, you know, just your consumer behavior. And I think just small little things like that can really impact a lot. So they don't know I'm going to mention this, but, you know, physical plant has been great in terms of looking at sustainability on campus here. And they were telling me just how much electricity, so emissions, are just because people leave lights on and leave projectors on. And so if people just little flip of the switch could actually have a huge impact just here on campus in terms of our sustainability. And I think people tend to think more big picture. And big picture is important and having government and corporations also hey. aligned. But, you know, here just flipping a switch could actually help so much. And, yeah, I think just more awareness of your actions is really important. I've, I've been hearing the classic triple R, reduce, reuse, recycle, mm -hmm. since I was, like, in first grade. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I think... Americans have had drilled into them through public education and really just life in general. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't really see major changes occurring in our culture. Like, it, what are what are the numbers? What's the data like for how much people are consuming electricity and energy today compared to I don't know twenty years ago before the triple R's were implemented? Yeah. I think you know, it's gone up. And so we use a lot more energy. People travel more. They consume products that take a lot more energy. The amount of electronics that are used is increased so much. So even just having all sorts of devices, but also making a cell phone takes so much energy and minerals. And so I think I think there's been a disconnect in terms of, I think people think, oh, <laughs> they think about the earth maybe once a year at Earth Day. Yeah, <laughs> and then right. other than that, most people are like, okay, let's move on to the next thing. But I think it's such an important thing because it's not just a bunch of green <laughs> folks with looking at that. It's tied to human health and economy and sustainability and equity. So that's why it's been great to see so many students with interests in sustainability come from all different disciplines because you can look at it from an international studies perspective or urban studies or philosophies perspective. And it's really about where we live and <laughs> what we're doing to where we live and our future. So I think just thinking about that more could help. But yeah, I, I don't think we've made too much progress. In fact, our missions are going up. And then you have different areas of the world that have had increased emissions. A lot of the areas that are not high emitters are bearing the brunt of a lot of the impacts just because where they're geographically located yeah right because it, it's going to disproportionately affect those who aren't consuming as much as we mm -hmm. are yeah yeah so we might be getting outside your wheelhouse here but along those same lines 
we've talked about the individual actions and like the micro level mm-hmm. things that we can do to make changes. But what are the macro level policy issues that we can address? Because I've heard mixed reviews about all sorts of things. Like mm-hmm. I, I've heard that electric vehicles emit just as much carbon as non-electric vehicles. I've heard that wind and uh, solar power aren't dependable. Like you hear lots of counter arguments to every single policy mm-hmm. proposal. So in your studies, what's the yeah. best solution? Yeah, I feel like there's no full agreement on anything, but yeah. I feel like these days people want to argue about it. I could say today's Thursday and someone would argue with me that today's Thursday, but sometimes it's that straightforward. But no, I think, yeah, there's with those alternatives to using fossil fuels and so forth, there's no perfect fix because it still requires energy. It's still, you're still building these structures and there's going to be waste. But overall, in terms of the overall environmental impact, it's much better than the reliance on fossil fuel. But with that goes reduction. So Everyone doesn't need to go out and buy a car (laughs) and have a million cars out there that are not needed. So I think they're switching more to having the technology to have these energy resources that are cleaner and hopefully more consistent, but also having in place better infrastructure so that you can get on the bus and go somewhere without it taking three hours or having programs in place to make it easier for people to access resources. So there, I think, a lot in the city and government infrastructure is really important. So we're such a car community because it's here in Memphis, it's difficult um, to get to certain places without a car. And so in other areas, it's a lot easier to catch a bus, to bike, to get on a subway and or a train. But... I think there that takes larger <laughs> infrastructure changes, which are going to be slow. But I think overall, just a different mindset in terms of, yes, you can always argue that putting in a bunch of solar panels that costs energy itself to produce them, and then you have to maintain them and there's waste involved there. But what's the alternative and to what extent can you just overall minimize your use of electricity or your use of a vehicle when needed. So I guess you could say that those who oppose a lot of these like quote unquote clean energy policies are really making straw men out of them because they're, they're not taking into account the fact that we, it also requires individual restriction on how much you're using energy, right? Yeah. I think there needs to be individual responsibility, but also the responsibility, the city, state, government industry. But I think there it's just people have certain interests and (laughs) you can take data and manipulate them in ways that suit your best interest. I'm just going online. Sometimes it's funny, not funny, but (laughs) interesting to see some of this stuff and the way you hear one thing and it spreads like wildfire. It's like, wait, that's not (laughs) (laughs) not true. (laughs) Yeah, that's just the nature of this interconnected world. Yeah. (laughs) What gives you hope through all this, though? Like you see all this dissent and misinformation on every single topic in every Mm -hmm. single way. And you see this data that just continues to get worse. What is it that gives you hope in that? I'd say overall, I think there are people who truly care. Not that there are are people who care, but and that there 
are a ton of people working on these issues and I think progress can be made. And I do see little glimpses of there can be progress, but then there are these huge other issues that pop up too that can take over. But, you know, I think also it seems like this actually came up in an earlier meeting today. It seems like the students now are much more like aware of sustainability and environmental issues and climate change. Whereas when I started here, it was for the most part the environmental science and study students. And that was, there were students here and there, there, but here it's like, I feel like there is a, wa a wider like appreciation and understanding and also seeing, I think people are seeing more how say their hometown is being impacted or their grandparents have been impacted or they know someone who has personally experienced it. So I think there's more awareness, even though there seems like everyone's just arguing all the time. I think that in a way, people are coming together more from these different subpopulations or people who tend to, you know, hang out with these group of friends and these, but realizing this is a common issue that it doesn't matter what you think about X, Y, or Z, that there's, there's this impact and you can now really see it. So I think overall that gives me hope and I, I think also if you lose hope, it's a lost cause. Yep. Um, and that even just a little bit of help, hope can help in terms of making things better because you think that there is a way to improve it. But I find that if it's always a message of no hope and yep. pessimism, then people are like, well, why should I even bother working to do this? Because it's not going to help. But things can improve. I and mean, we'll talk about this in class after the break too, in terms of, yeah, the data do not look very great in terms of climate change, but, you know, there are certain things you can do that can make these improvements. And so it doesn't have to be perfect, but just every little thing, everyone does stuff and supports initiatives to make things cleaner and healthier for everyone, <laughs> you can have improvements. Yeah, it seems it seems to me though that the problem is that requires a lot of compassion. Mm -hmm. Like that requires a lot of selflessness to say that me putting in all this work is going to help many generations down the line mm -hmm. survive and actually be born, right? Because if, if we continue at this rate, like the the earth is eventually going to go through a destructive phase no matter when that occurs, but we have the ability to prolong that by a very large amount. And so I'm just kind of curious what role compassion plays in what you do. Because obviously what you do is very focused on equity and sustainability. And what have you seen with regard to compassion and empathy in your work? I'd say with what you were saying about having compassion for large groups of people and in the future. So it's there, it's hard to have that personal tie. But I see that through my work that people care about those around them. And so even though your personal interactions may be a small group of people or a larger group of people, but I think that's where people are willing to work. And so they don't feel like the work they're doing is worthless because they know that if they're in this one area and they're having issues with their water quality, they're going to work to get that improved if they can, because it impacts them and the people they care about. And so there, I think 
even if you don't have this feeling of looking globally at the impacts, even if you look really within your own social circles and family, I think that's where people oftentimes are given that momentum in terms of working for a better future, because there you have those personal ties mm -hmm. and you have similar, oftentimes similar views or similar interests similar experiences. You may be very different personality-wise, but you all grew up in this one area and you're like, we want to protect that area yeah. um, and make sure that the drinking water is safe and that the food grown in the soil is not contaminated. Uh, kind of an interesting question, very closely related. When you were studying um, the primates in Paraguay, did you notice when one species would get pushed out of an environment that they would come together like what, what was it in these species while they were trying to transition from one habitat to another or make the most of the situation that allowed them to do so yeah so with so the primate work was mostly in brazil oh i'm sorry oh, that's okay the small mammals were in paraguay but yeah so there in terms of some of the those fragments and some of them only had howler monkeys <laughs> no other species was there others you did the larger areas did have multiple species. For the bearded sake monkeys themselves, they didn't really hang out with any of the other species. And so they kind of, you know, sometimes they'd be near the howler monkeys, but they wouldn't really interact, but they wouldn't compete. But their diets are so different. Mm -hmm. There's really no competition there. In the more continuous forest that was not as disturbed at all, they would sometimes travel with capuchin monkeys. But again, they have very different diets, so it's not a competition type thing. They would forage in the same tree. So I think because of the primates in this area that I was studying, there are six species, they all had such different dietary, you know, adaptations that there wasn't really any conflict ever or apparent competition. Mm -hmm. They kept their own spaces and but sometimes did overlap. And they would work together at times? In my area, they didn't really, I wouldn't say work together. They just, they did, there weren't too many interactions with, between the bearded sakis and other species. It was just like cohabitating. Yeah. <laughs> but not really interacting. <laughs> with, with different species of like, let's just continue on the primate track. Mm -hmm. Do you see any sort of relationship or compassion to cross species? Because... A lot of the problems that we're talking about are due to anthropocentricity, which is thinking a human species is superior to all others, mm -hmm. that we should be the dominant species on earth. And is that is that something that's tied to our animal nature? Like are all animal species species centric? I So like, for example, there are other species that will adopt individuals from another species. And so there you have them forming bonds with typically infants of another species. And so I think there's that ability to have compassion for others or interest in others and interact with others. But even on an individual to individual basis, when you look at a lot of the animal behavior class I teach, looks at what decisions are made and can you explain them in terms of, are you doing it for your own good, <laughs> your own effort, your own benefit? And so individuals across species will do certain things for their own good. But, you know, you do have, for example, lots of individuals who will do something for another species. So like that was a while ago, maybe a decade or so ago, where like a boy fell into a gorilla exhibit at a zoo and the gorilla went and got him. You know, so, the Harambe incident. Yeah. <laughs> 
And then there was also one with a man was drowning and a chimpanzee went and grabbed him. So there are these interactions, but, you know, in a more natural setting, there's not as much, I'd say, oftentimes species overlap in those types of interactions. But there are a lot of species where they have mixed species flocks where they hang out together and they graze together. And so you do have a lot of species that'll travel from place to place together or and the monkeys will drop the fruit on the ground and the peccaries will take it. Um, mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that they're saying, hey, here you go. But, you know, they do interact together in that way. Did you see a lot of beauty in that sort of symbiotic natural system when you were studying these primates? Like when a monkey would drop some fruit down yeah. and then these would these other animals would go grab it. And like, I feel like there's all these really just yeah. charming moments in nature. And do you think about that a lot? Yeah. So for something like that, I I think I more on the, oh, that's a good way for seed dispersal. Yeah. You know, and the monkey's just being messy at that point. But, you know, I think there is something very beautiful about nature and other organisms too, not just animals. And so, and I think that's why it's such a focus for a lot of people in terms of making sure that people have access to nature because for a lot of people, it is healing and it does improve your mood and your overall well-being. And so that too, though, is an equity issue. Not everyone has access to nature. So it's, yeah, I think, important. Also, I'm curious, when you were with the beard, let's just stick on the beard socket. Mm -hmm. When you were with them, you were grazing with them in a way. You are <laughs> traveling with them. Can you tell us like a story or two or just what that experience was like? Sure. So yeah, we, they ignored us because it was me and then I had a field assistant and then typically um, a student with me. So I had two wonderful students who worked with me throughout uh, the process, one at a time, who were undergraduate at a local Brazilian university. And so we would just follow them. And so you got to know them and their routines. And it was just, there were times when we spent... My field assistant and I spent so many hours together, but you could go for hours and hours and not even talk, but share the moment and we were collecting data the whole time. And other times when they would rest, we would then talk quietly and that's when we'd pull out our food and we'd eat because when you're chasing monkeys, it's hard to eat anything. So yeah, it was, it was neat to just follow them and see what they did and see how they used their environments. And also it was nice just to get away and not be in a busy city. <laughs> was it weird coming back to cities after that? Yeah, it was because, but it was nice in a way, truthfully, to have access to some research. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, it was very different. And you I, almost view like the people around you as like <laughs> other monkeys. Yeah, but... like I think just with studying primates for a while and then having the background in anthropology and then biology and just seeing I feel like I've learned a lot from the primates in terms of how humans then interact with each other and also it sounds probably odd but you know watching other non-human primates and how they interact with young has definitely influenced my approach to being a mom especially with young kids and just just seeing how for example, chimpanzee mothers and also non-mothers will approach an infant and take care. It's I think there's a lot to be learned and you see a lot of the similarities. And so, yeah, 
it's coming back to a city, it's always a bit shocking because there's so many people and it's loud, but it's also exciting too, to be in a new environment. Yeah. As I've told you, I'm reading uh, Demonic Males mm -hmm. by Richard Rangham right now. And one thing I read the other day was, well, I mean, in in general, right? Like all, all primates, the way that they care for their young is extremely important to their behavior, to their social associations. But one thing that he talked about was, I think it's for gorillas, female gorillas who have infants when they're all traveling in a pack to get food will always lag behind and the males and the females who don't have infants will always be in the forefront. And this is something interesting and gets equity in a way. Do you, do you think that that is also the case for what we see in the world today with regard to like the pay gap? For example, like I know this is a, a weird question to jump to, but I was just thinking about the fact that a lot of people will say that the pay gap between men and women is due to women having children and then having to like lose time at work and care for the children. And uh, I'm just curious, like, is that one of those overlaps that you would see between primates and humans? Yeah, there I think it's probably, I would see it differently because with Females without young and then males going first, that could also be overall just in terms of leading the group, not necessarily that they're leaving them behind per se. And then oftentimes, not always, but individuals with young oftentimes hang around. There's so many examples of others helping others raise their young that's not just oftentimes the one female. But in terms of the pay gap, even without females who don't have children and so haven't had to pause their career, there are a little, from what I've seen, <laughs> there's a lot of evidence that, you know, may, overall, it's due, more than that. it's due to more than that. That's not my area of study. It's just things I've read. And then also personal experiences with people I know that there, I think there is a gap there. And I think people are trying to address it, but... I think it, it is problematic in terms of people yeah. applying for the same job and depending on what their name is on their resume, they're judged differently. And you see that with other examples too, in terms of yeah. what's put on a resume. Yeah. Just your name can mm -hmm. tell an employer so much Yeah, and often in a prejudicial way. Back to a little more of a general idea, yeah. <laughs> but you having kids, mm -hmm. what was that like, especially after studying? primates with their children for so long like what was motherhood like for you and did you feel ever that you were just part of this beautiful <laughs> cycle of life yeah so I have two young children and I really enjoy being a parent I feel like it is amazing to watch them develop and see how they you know, change in terms of their personality, but also just their physical development and what they're able to do one day. And then all of a sudden, it seems like they're able to do so much more in cognitive development. So, and it's been fascinating. And so it's an area that I'm like, oh, I wish I knew more about that before in terms of child Every development. Parent yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, I, I really enjoy being a parent. Was it completely life-changing? For me, I'd say, yes, even it, it's just different to have now these two little <laughs> creatures who, you know, really for a while, they depended on us. I mean, they still do, but, you know, for a while, I mean, human infants are so underdeveloped and rely so much on care 
And so, but then watching how they develop and become more and more independent is really amazing. And so it's been interesting to to look at that and then look at other examples in terms of like when the hippo at the zoo had a baby several years ago, it was just neat to see how she then developed and became yeah. more independent. And yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how similar different species are mm -hmm. with regard to raising the young. Yeah. Because I mean, that seems to be, and I, I'm curious your opinion mm -hmm. on this, but it seems to be one of the like few real true purposes of life, like that just preservation in general requires having offspring and then raising the young and seems like all, every single species in the world pretty much does that in a, in a way that requires some sort of parent to child relationship. Except it varies quite a bit because there are some species where the, you know, biological parents never interact with the young. They just have them and then leave. Yeah. So it's like, you have fertilization happen right. and that's it. <laughs> and so, it's you know, common in fish. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and then you have other, you know, species where you don't have as much of a social group that helps raise the young or even one parent. And so it varies a lot. And then it's also, yes, for a species to have longevity, you need to have multiple generations. So there has to be some sort of reproduction and it can be asexual reproduction in some species. But, you know, it's also in terms of an individual themselves doesn't necessarily need to reproduce to have their genetics components passed on to the next generation if no individuals they're related to are having young. So, because like there are a lot of species where like they never reproduce <laughs> individuals. There's only a handful of individuals who, or just two, <laughs> who reproduce, but they're typically closely related to yeah. those. Like, yeah. I remember you to listen class the other day about I think it's prairie dogs but like the the female prairie dogs will alert everybody and the reason that it's the females who alert everybody is because they have the most relatives and it's like animals will behave in a way that benefits their genetic offspring as much as possible even if that means like just family not even like oneself mm -hmm. so do you do you see that behavior in humans as well I mean I, I feel like that's pretty true that human beings will naturally feel more affiliation with their family and more like more compassion will do more for the family than for other people. Yeah, I'd say overall. And that also then ties into to what extent do you have these social relationships with them? So typically the more socially tied you are to an individual, probably the more likely you are to help protect that individual. And so in a lot of cases, that individual is related to you. But there are other situations where people have those ties where they're not related and the same behavior. And they found that with some of the primate studies too, that some of these bonds and also with some vampire bat studies that, you know, who you have these really strong social bonds with can be very, very impactful for how you will behave in a certain situation. So yes, in terms of Genetics similarity is your family that you're most genetically close to. But, you know, if you think just historically and so forth, you're probably hanging out with them also, too. But, you know, you have these situations where you have genetic strangers that are no longer strangers, that you have similar behaviors in terms of who you'll step up for. Right, like you'll favor a mate, but even beyond that, you'll favor a friend, even though, even of the same sex as you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can we talk about evolution a little bit? Sure. Can you just give a brief overview of the story of us? Like, 
where where we come from, how long things have been since we've okay. been something else, and et cetera. Yeah, so that, I mean, that could be it. <laughs> yeah, I know. We offer a whole class on uh, human <laughs> evolution at Rhodes. Um, but yeah, so I mean, you know, we are primates. And I think a lot of times people forget about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've been saying primates and humans, but yeah. you, you know what I mean. It's, yeah, oh, I do. Yeah, no. And a lot of people who say, do that just to kind of quickly separate them. But yeah, I mean, in terms of our evolution, it's pretty fascinating, I think, in terms of early primates and then early hominids. So in like early apes and so forth, but also all the species that have come and gone. And so in thinking about early humans and their interactions and how the environment played a role in certain, it's just, it's pretty amazing, I think, to just kind of step back and think that it wasn't just poof. <laughs> yeah. we are. And also just looking at the other current living species of primates. Uh, and just thinking about their evolution and just different patterns and processes. It's it's always, yeah, fast. evolution has always been something that's interested me a lot, too, since I was little. So do you do you think like a lot of people tend to say that humans evolved beyond other animals? But can you talk a little bit about how that's not true? Yeah, I think again, that's very human-centric type Mm. thought. And yet we do things that other species don't in terms of the type of technology that we have. And But I also think it's important to think more broadly in terms of what can these other species do that we're really bad at doing. So just some of the spatial cognition and spatial capacities of some other species where they can do this really roundabout route and go back to where they started directly or remember where they buried things or solve certain tasks or communicate and we can't even hear it. So, you know, there, I think overall, there are parts of the, you know, overall human being, a typical human that we don't have very developed certain, you know, capacities compared to some of the species out there. And I think people don't think, they always think about certain ways and, oh, that means that we're more intelligent. But what is intelligence and how are you measuring it? So if we were given a spatial task against (laughs) some of these other species, we wouldn't do as well. So, and yeah, obviously there are lots of things that humans can do when we have really modified our environments more than anything else out there in terms of negatively modified it. But there's a lot that we can't do and we survive off of other species. (laughs) If, <laughs> yeah, we would not exist if there were no other species because we can't make our own food. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, like if bees die out, you know, there there goes the entire yeah. food chain. And even bees themselves yeah, right. can't live without plants. Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, we're all interconnected and really depend on each other. That was like the first note I wrote when I was doing the, the reading for the first day of your class. Like it was just, it, it was amazing. It was basically 10 pages of just we are interconnected. Here's how, here's how, mm-hmm. here's how. You mentioned how different species will have different capacities that they develop or evolve to have. And I think one of the capacities that people tend to point to for humans to say, this is why humans are more important or get superiority mm-hmm. is consciousness, mm-hmm. self-recognition. Mm-hmm. When you were studying primates or even in other animals like octopi, for example, do you think that consciousness exists in them as well? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Other, even if we just talk about primates, they they are so intelligent, and 
through all sorts of different types of research projects, both in the field and in laboratories, they show they can recognize self, they can reflect. It's they have such complex social interactions. And that's just talking about primates, but you know, other organisms as well. It's just fascinating in terms of I teach the animal behavior class and I just find it really interesting because I get to learn about mm-hmm. all these different components of animals and just it's interesting to see how complex they are. And so I say we're unique in the, in the way that we've uh, modified the surface of the earth in a not so great way in some areas. But yeah, I don't, I mean, there's different levels of say cognition, but I wouldn't say that others don't have high levels of cognition and consciousness. And yeah. And also how do you, you don't talk to them. How do you know yeah. <laughs> those things? Definitely. Yeah. There's a, an interesting essay called what is it like to be a bat, which I don't, I don't know if you've heard of that, Mm-mm. but it's basically 300 something pages, I think about whether or not we can know what it's like to be a bat, like whether mm-hmm. that's conscious. And it, the ending conclusion is just like, you can't know. Yeah. Like, who knows? Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's something that's important to keep in mind. But like for somebody like you who studied primates for so long, like you can see it's not just homo sapiens that have these qualities. And even like, like passions and emotions and personalities, like mm-hmm. personal identity, that's something that you, that you saw in your research as well. Like when I do certain... Gorillas, let's say, individuals have certain preferences to do certain activities. Definitely. And just that's part of why I have structured this current class in that I know there are a lot of students in the class who are taking it because they need, they need a lab science to graduate. And that's great. But I'm hoping that in doing so and having those interactions with whichever study subject they chose, they will, with spending that time week after week, watching the behavior of those animals. Yeah gain an appreciation that no one's doing the elephants, but those elephants are so different from each other. And it doesn't take long for students to pick up on that. And even with like the lions, the lion group has already talked about how there's differences in terms of how they interact with each other. So I think just having that exposure can help people see that an elephant isn't an elephant. Those are individual individuals. And with all sorts of organisms. There are individuals, for example, who are pretty bold and others are very timid. Like, for example, my husband studies that with lizards. And so not all lizards are the same, not even of the same species that were raised together. And I can think about if you look at siblings, there are personality differences. And so it, they do have personalities. Even at the reptilian stage, like even reptiles have distinct personalities. Yeah, I'd say in terms of being, like, if you consider it in terms of, are you more, if there's a novel object or a stressor, are you going to approach that and be bold or are you going to not approach it? Some are much more bold versus timid. And so, yeah, hippie, great stuff. <laughs> so yeah, about the work definitely... in terms of approaching and their differences in terms of how they approach their environment. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, what do you make of the question of free will after studying? all of these different species and seeing how there are differences, but that most of them at least can be described or explained by scientific data or just, you know, empirical evidence. So do do you think that humans have free will or even other primates as well? Yeah, I'd say overall 
humans as well as other org species. There are patterns in our behavior that you can explain why humans do this versus that, or, or in this situation, why a gorilla would do this versus that and so forth, or if the environment changes, what's most likely to happen. But I think also that's where the individual component gets in too. So you take a room full of people, put them in the same situation, they're not going to all respond the same way. Uh, Can you explain that through chemicals and hormones though? Yeah, so it can, in terms of just overall differences in the genetic and hormones, but also your overall exposure in terms of environment. So what's been your previous experience right. doing that? What was your development like in terms of social, if it's a social type task or something? And so there, I think a lot of it has to do with just what you've been exposed to. So it's not necessarily specifically genetics or predetermined, so much of the environment plays a role on how individuals behave, but also differences in terms of how individuals will respond to different situations. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think such a common fallacy is to say that nature or nurture explains mm -hmm. things. Like I, I just, I roll my eyes every time I hear that because yeah, I think just 10 minutes of reflection could tell you that it's both. Yeah. And very, very mixed at different times too. What I'm sure that you know about like the naturalistic fallacy that a lot of, especially primatologists or evolutionary biologists tend to deal with, which is just that if something is natural, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily good or bad. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I, I feel like people tend to be like, well, it's just, it's human nature. So it's, it's good. It, mm -hmm. it, it's all right. Or that's just how dogs naturally behave. That's, that's good. Yeah. So what's, and also what's the difference between humans, natural behavior and a dog's natural behavior being good and bad? Because I feel like a lot of times we tend to just allow dogs to behave like dogs. Like if a dog bites you, you say, well, that's just how that dog is. But if a human commits a crime, you say that human chose to do that crime and it's, mm -hmm. it's wrong. And I'm, I'm mixing up a couple of ideas here. So feel free to sort yep. that out. So I'd say just stepping back in terms of if it's natural, it's, it's good. You can think of just all the things out there that can kill us that are natural <laughs> in terms of just poisonous plants, for example, which the plants, fine with that. They tend to have those compounds to protect themselves. But I, I hear when people talk about, oh, this substance is, it's natural. It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can really hurt you too. There's a reason why we don't eat everything out there. So yeah, I think in terms of more in terms of people's actions and other actions of other organisms, there there are certain things to me, I think, that predispose people to act in one way or another or in terms of their environment and various stressors and so forth, but also their choices people make as well. But I don't see that different from a lot of other species in terms of when you watch animals behave, there's some that just give others a really hard time and do things that you're like, why are you even doing that? <laughs> there's, you all have enough food, <laughs> you're, you're just being a jerk. But some of that is more naturally influenced some in terms of one's behavior and also your, your overall environment from the time your bunch of cells to now. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's not a very straightforward type thing either. 
But yeah, when I mean dogs, they get punished. If they some dogs that bite, they get they get punished, and that some of them get put to sleep. So yeah, I think also people also oftentimes try to use science in the past, but also currently to almost provide excuses for behavior or for. For example, science was used a lot to push forward racist ideas, mm -hmm. and that was very misuse of the science and not often, it's just oftentimes it's like, oh, well, that's science and this shows this, but you can use, you know, information wrongly and incorrectly and misinterpret the science, but use it for certain types of ideas. So I don't know. There are various behaviors that are not ideal and that do harm to others. And so I think it's not great to say, oh, well, it's, you can explain it, explain it by science. I know that a lot of the things that we eat today, even if people claim that they're natural or organic, tend to be genetically modified and just not as healthy overall for you. So what, what can we do and also what can we avoid to make sure that our nutrition is staying up and we're staying healthy. And maybe we'll also talk about phthalates and all these other chemicals that are just everywhere. Yeah. And affecting us and other species negatively all the time. What do you do in your daily life to avoid those things? Yeah. So, I mean, you brought up so many topics in the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but to start with, you know, just overall food and natural, I mean, most all that we eat has been heavily modified. Even if it hasn't been genetically modified directly in a laboratory setting, selectively bred plants for certain features. And so overall, the diversity in our crops has diminished because we focus on just a handful of crop items. We're talking about plants, but also all sorts of other organisms that people ate in the past versus now. And so there's with that comes a lot of issues, too, in terms of what happens to those crops. They're impacted negatively by a disease or climate. And so that just the crop trust is actually an opportunity for students at Rhodes to gain experience. Um, you talk about the crop way. trust a little bit? I, I haven't heard yeah, that. So it's, a, it's based in Bonn, Germany. And so we have here at Rhodes a very generous donation by the Lanoffs family. An amazing opportunity so that Upon graduation, one road student can go and work for 12 months at the Crop Trust. And they look at preserving agricultural diversity and what that means also in the face of climate change. We also have a summer internship that's available too. But when just looking over time, how have our diets changed in terms of just what's available? And so even though we have more access to stuff in terms of growing up, I never had an avocado because... They, they were not in the grocery store, but now you can go get an avocado anywhere at 12 months out of the year, which is kind of funny. But in terms of the chemicals and such, I think that can be an issue, especially for people who are immune compromised or pregnant or breastfeeding or wanting to become pregnant. And so I think there it's just a lot of being very aware of what you're purchasing and how you're handling it in terms of cleaning it or cooking it to the right temperature. So what yeah. do you take in like your family's diet? What do you guys do to try to make sure that you're getting all your nutrients? Uh, just eat foods with lots of different colors. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah, vegetables, fruits, but then also whole grains, trying to reduce the processed foods. And also we just 
cook a lot, which in terms of doing that, you're eating more of the actual, you're limiting the processing that goes in, even though some of the food items might be processed a bit, like pasta noodles, for example, it's very different than just having your whole meal from a box. Or if you go and buy something or from another location, could have a lot of processed ingredients, depending on what you're buying, or it just could be expensive or not as healthy because people tend to like the things that are not as healthy when they go out to eat. But yes, yeah, so we cook a lot and try to just eat whole grains and vegetables and get enough protein and so forth. So, but yeah. Do you eat meat? I do eat a little meat. I don't grew up not liking meat even. So, <laughs> and then didn't eat meat for a long time. And then I do eat a little like with my family and then I did eat meat, but primarily we eat a lot of fish and then ate uh, meat, when, especially when I was in the Amazon, because there were certain things that it was a lot easier to get fish <laughs> than, I mean, I remember the first time I saw broccoli, it was just like, oh my goodness, I haven't seen broccoli in a year because broccoli doesn't, you know, yeah. grow there. Oh yeah, your diet uh, like, totally changed when you were in Brazil. Mm -hmm. Was the fish, was the fish good? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we ate a lot. I mean, most of our meals were rice and beans. And luckily, I love rice and beans. Very healthy, too. But yeah, it's in terms of we don't eat a lot of, I mean, I can't tell you last time we had red meat at home. <laughs> um, we do eat fish. And so I haven't been a strict vegetarian for a long time. But, you know, I do eat a little bit. I tend, we don't eat much. Gotcha. Okay. The 180 here. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, you've studied so much in so many places, mm -hmm. and I've, I've always heard that evolutionary biologists, like the one thing that they, and I, I know that's not specifically what you are, but one of the questions that they can never answer is, <laughs> uh <-oh>. yeah, <laughs> is why and when evolution began. Mm -hmm. Do you, what do you, what do you make of the process of the life cycle and evolution and all of these eternal processes that seem to be so beautifully rational. Like, like you, you can reason your way through all of this. That's why you're a scientist. So do you make any sort of metaphysical leap when it comes to, uh, I don't know, nature? Yeah. So I think evolution can, it's just change. And so from the first tiny organisms, <laughs> and you have generation after generation, there's evolution occurring, there's change. And so I think with looking at how long there's been life on earth, and then that's a huge amount of time. And so these changes have resulted in a lot of diversity. But, you know, when did it all begin? And, you know, yeah, with that. You ever think about that? I do. And so it's like, I feel like with, because I've been interested in evolution for so long, it's interesting for me to think back to when I first started reading about, especially human evolution and how much has changed since my interest in that. And just because we know more, we know more now and just all these species that were never in my, even like dinosaurs, my kids love dinosaurs. I'm like, I'm learning with them because when I was little, those dinosaurs were not named that. So, so much changes in terms of the amount of material out there to process and so for me it's just a lifelong journey of 
learning. And so just realizing that what we know now in 10 years will probably be very different, you know, Mm -hmm. and how we approach it. Because like the other day, one of my kids was like, okay, Google, tell me this. And they don't do that very often, but they saw someone doing it. And I was like, oh my God, oh, no. just 10, five years ago, I never would have even thought of that. And wow. I think that how much has changed just since they were born, but also when I was their age, how much has changed and mm. what is it going to be like in 10 years or in terms of our understanding of the world and the past and so forth. So I think it's interesting to think about, but I always feel like, we know so little about it. <laughs> you know, yeah. The more I know, the more I've like, as I've gotten older, I'm like, yeah, we just don't know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you think you've settled on something and then you're like, oh, no, actually, I think that's, that's yeah. right. This is, this is wrong. Interesting. Yeah. I think there are common themes though, with all of those things. Like, so your kid's saying, okay, Google, <laughs> like humans since the beginning of time have been tool makers and that's mm-hmm. what set us apart from other primates. I, I mean, I know other primates use tools, but the degree to which they can use them is not as advanced as humans, right? Yeah, so they make tools, um, and that's that was the famous quote by Louis Leakey when Jane Goodall sent a telegram mm-hmm. saying, right. or telegraph, that I saw tool making. He's like, now we have to redefine what it means to be human. And what it means to have a tool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, our tools are definitely more complex as I look at this phone, and if I think about even... When I started at Rhodes, I didn't have a phone that could do what it can do. And it's pretty crazy in terms of technology. So, yeah, I think our tool making is very advanced. It's also, I have no idea what's to come with it, too. But (laughs) seeing how much has changed in the last decade. Mm -hmm. But it it is interesting. Like, things change. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, so much stays the same. Like, there's there's always going to be the constant laws of physics, the constant laws of human behavior and animal behavior. So I don't know. That's that's something that I'm always going to be wondering about is mm-hmm. just the way in which everything changes, yes, and everything passes away and nothing's constant, but there is still something that is constant underneath all of it. And I think for some people, maybe that's something that they find in religion. Mm-hmm. Other people, that's something that they find in scientific study all the time. Mm-hmm. And I guess you would fall into the latter camp. Not that it's a dichotomy, yeah. but... It's, a, it's definitely not a dichotomy. No. There are plenty of people who are scientists and are very religious. One, probably one of the most well-known climate scientists in the United States is evangelical. She's Canadian, Dr. Hayhoe. She gave a talk last semester, actually, at Rhodes, virtually. But yeah, I'd say oftentimes there tend to be certain pockets of people who study, who are interested in certain topics who tend not to be as religious, and I'm not religious. Um, so to me, I don't really think about the world in terms of explaining it scientifically. I mean, that's what I do as my job, but I think I just approach things just differently in terms of how I see it, maybe, Mm -hmm. or truthfully feel it. Because I grew up in a family where we went to church every Sunday and I went to Sunday school. Then in high school, it's like, I really tried to understand about being religious and it never worked for me. It just was nothing that I ever like felt. So even with that education and the exposure and I remember in 10th or 11th grade being like, okay, I'm going to try. <laughs> I was just like, yep, no, that just doesn't work. <laughs> Don't feel it. So that's, I mean, that's just, yeah. so to me, it's not like a decision I ever made. It was just 
I think too, a lot, it's just how I am and mm-hmm. how I feel. So yeah, it's like, I appreciate religion. I appreciate there are lots of different types of religion. That's where it does bother me when people get so mine is better than yours. I me think too. as humans, we have a way of yeah. doing that quite often. Like my sports team's better than yours. Right. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Still sports. <laughs> is your city better than mine? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, to me, I, I see it more as, yeah, it can be exposure, but it also can be just how you feel. Uh, so how do you find purpose and meaning in life then? If like mm-hmm. just many people find themselves hitting that wall of that, that you mentioned earlier, of just knowing that we are constantly discovering new things. You can't really know anything. So they, mm-hmm. most people feel an inclination to latch on to something that they mm-hmm. can know is true. Something that gives them some purpose in life. That's not going to leave them. So yeah. for you, what are, what are those things? I'd say just relationships and being with and forming those relationships and being in people I love and knowing that I'm not going to be here forever and near, neither are they, but you know, it's it just doing things that interest me, but also obviously doing things that don't know I have to do for <laughs> to have food on the table. But yeah, it, it, to me, it, I don't know. I, in looking at the studies, the different species, and then looking at my kids, um, I really think that it's just relationships and just being nice and trying to be nice. <laughs> and I know that they'll probably be people like, yeah, I can tell you when she wasn't nice to me, but yeah, I think also just appreciating to me, I, I think it's very interesting, not only how many species are out there, but how different people are and appreciating those differences, but in a way that people are using them to appreciate and respect each other. And I think that's what I'm trying to instill in my children is people are different and they have different experiences and different beliefs and different ways to approach things. But if we're respectful and if what people are saying and doing doesn't cause harm, then it's really great to, you know, get those perspectives and learn about someone else's experiences or thoughts or beliefs and so forth. But that's where it gets to, <laughs> where do you get into then? People are not always nice and respectful and, but neither are whole other organisms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There really is no, there's no perfect life form. Mm-mm. I mean, maybe like, are, this is a random question, but are plants aggressive with one another? Cause I mean, every, every single animal has moments where we would say, that's wrong. That's right. That's just, mm-hmm. that's unjust humans all the way down to fish or yeah. beyond that. But are plants like that? Well, plants, some plants will put out chemicals in the soil. So no other plants will yeah. grow. <laughs> right. So that's, <laughs> or get thorns on. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, they can, they have various strategies to compete. So those chemicals where others can't grow or competing for light. Yeah. So I'd say it depends on how you you look at it in terms of behavior, like what's plant behavior in terms, but yeah, it's. Last question. 
because I'm definitely going to be interviewing him now. Okay, <laughs> good but, luck. Yeah. He's not a big talker either. <laughs> okay, you guys let the kids talk all the time. Yeah, the youngest talks all the time. <laughs> That's surprising because I would think that usually opposites attract, but I guess yeah. just so our viewers know, um, what was what was it like? meeting your husband and what, what's it like working at Rhodes with him that's a really interesting part yeah it's it's great having him here but we have a lot of shared experiences and it's nice to I don't see him throughout the day very often these days but I do it's like oh hi but you know it we met in graduate school and so have a lot of shared interests there and yeah so his work I have a few I, knowing him <laughs> I have for about 20 years now he most likely will not agree to this to talk because he's much more private. But his work is really interesting and just we have similar interests and similar thoughts about life. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's it's been good. How long were you guys uh, like dating before you guys got married? Five years. Gotcha. What was that like adjusting from? Uh, I guess that was probably right around the time that you went to the Amazon then, right? Yeah, so, yeah, I went to the Amazon in his first time in 2003. So I started grad school in 2002. So I knew okay. him for less than a year before I first took off. Perfect. But no, I had actually done a field course. So, yeah, I was the one who was constantly leaving the country. And you first met <laughs> that he was some, like he was a special guy before you left to go to the Amazon first time? Yeah, I knew he was special. I didn't know if we would ever get married. And then, yeah, it just kind of progressed. And then, truthfully... I was never one who was like, oh, I need to get married. We're in a long-term relationship. But then, truthfully, a lot came down to yeah, <laughs> jobs and all the stuff with that in terms of if you are married, how that works on paper with health insurance. And he, at the time, was not a citizen of the U.S. And so, too, it, that type of just thinking and <laughs> Yeah. You know, specifically about that kind of Practic stuff, just because none of you know, we were like, yeah, we wanted to get married in my parents' living room. And then my parents were just <laughs> like, we can't fit the whole family in our living room. That's hilarious. What is wrong with you? So, but yeah, I was like, we're like, we just, <laughs> it's not a big deal to us. That's for us, it's, that's not the important thing. So you two were both pretty introverted, you would say? Yes. <laughs> okay. And what's, what's that dynamic like to be with somebody who's also introverted? Not not getting too personal, mm -hmm. but just like, how do you guys keep the relationship going and what's what's fun for you guys? Yeah, so I think like in terms of our family unit, you know, and even before the girls came along, I mean, we're both introverted, but we still talk and interact, but we don't, like, in, I guess for our family, it was easier during the pandemic to not be able to interact because we were perfectly fine hanging yeah. out in the backyard yeah. or <laughs> week after week, it turned into years. So... Yeah, it's, it's, we just do things as a family and they're pretty low key, but do things that are fun, but we don't feel the need to go out and do something exciting every week. Yeah, you two are on, <laughs> on the same track every weekend. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. So last question for you <laughs> okay. is what, what advice would you give to somebody who's a student at Rhodes, perhaps even looking back at yourself when you were at college? If you could give one piece of advice, what would it be? Yeah, so this is not original at all, because actually she came to my college when I was a senior and spoke to the seniors who were studying primates. And I asked that question of her, if she had advice for college. She said, be persistent. 
And you, you asked Jane Goodall that? Yes. You've asked Jane Goodall this question and I'm asking yes. you. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Keep going. That's awesome. And she said, be persistent. And that was her answer. And then she went into a longer explanation. And so for me, that's always stayed with me because I'm very happy with where I'm in terms of my job and my career and have had some amazing opportunities, but it hasn't been easy. And you have to be persistent no matter which direction you go. And I tell my advisees who come in and they're approaching graduation, they're like, it's rejected again. It's like, in college, we had a whole wall. We call it the wall of shame. It was because back then they mailed you your rejections on paper. Oh, yeah. So we just had a wall covered in all of our paper rejections. <laughs> just like you let, laugh at it because at some point you just have to laugh. Yeah. But yeah, I'd say be persistent in that you don't have to know what you're going to do immediately and that what you think you want to do now can change as you're exposed to different things. And so, yeah, be persistent and do what, you know, you love as long as it puts you in a situation where you're able to be healthy and happy. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for the support. Yep. Thank this you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Links on Life. Today's episode made me think a lot about just how minuscule I am in comparison to the vastness of life on this planet. So often we like to think that we're the center of our own universe and that human beings were meant to rule this world. I mean, that's what our oldest books in the world tend to state that human beings are a superior species. And while I haven't spent a lot of time studying biology at all, Professor Boyle has. And from what Professor Boyle has to say and what, what she's seen in her studies is that there's so much we don't understand about the lives of other species, whether it's plants or fungi or primates or fish or any other eukaryotic species. It truly is incredible to just place yourself as one individual life form amidst billions of other life forms. Billions is probably not doing it justice. It's probably more like trillions. But again, what little do I know? While Professor Boyle doesn't necessarily ascribe to a certain faith, I find that there's a lot of value in being able to be comfortable with the fact that our lives are so comparatively small and short and relaxing in the fact that we need to do what we can do to make other people's lives better. Whether that's you getting into a certain religion that teaches you that you need to be compassionate to others and show love to others, or you bypassing religion and just focusing on the fact that we need to save people because people are suffering. Beyond people, life is suffering. I mean, even in this talk, there you go, you see that I'm placing humans as the center of everything. But there's so much that we don't understand and there's so much that we can still do to make this world a better place. So Professor Boyle is doing that through environmental science research. 
But I think no matter what you choose to do with your life, you can always make this world a better place. Doesn't matter what you're studying, doesn't matter what your interests are, but as Professor Boyle makes clear, be persistent and be kind to others. And that'll, that'll get you somewhere in life. Lastly, I also found the discussion of consciousness very interesting. It was a smaller part of this episode, but there was a point where Professor Boyle basically explained that consciousness and free will will always remain mysterious. And we often think that humans are the only conscious animals on this planet, but Professor Boyle seems to think that there's just as good of a reason to believe that the other animals, especially primates, demonstrate very similar behavior that would suggest that they also are conscious. And while intelligence may differ from species to species or even individual to individual, consciousness is something separate. And so it's very possible that the animals that we're harming, that we don't even think about or hear about, are feeling that suffering at the same level that we feel suffering every day. These animals, these plants, are losing their homes. Not because of something that they did, but because of something that we did. And there's a lot of virtue signaling that I could do in this reflection about what we need to do in our lives to improve, and that's absolutely true. We do need to do better, and I'm going to be a lot more conscious of how much I'm using water and wasting food. But of course, it also requires macro-level changes that people need to, need to implement. And so hopefully, eventually, we can get to the point where our government comes around on the fact that people and animals and plants and life are suffering as a result of our actions. And there needs to be repercussions for those who create suffering in this world. Intentionally, I should add. This conversation could leave somebody quite depressed about the future of our world, but I just want to leave with a statement that there's still hope in this world. As Professor Boyle said, without hope, there's not much reason to keep on living at all. And so for us to consider what it means to be a life, we must also maintain a sense of hope. Thank you for listening.